morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. I would like to extend a welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask that we greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. I'm Marcia Sharp. I will be your lay leader this morning. These are words from John Murray. You may possess only a small light, but uncover it, let it shine. Use it in order to bring more light and understanding to the hearts and minds of men and women. Give them not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into their theological despair, but preach the kindness and everlasting love of God. People say in the Unitarian Universalist churches, there are folks with backgrounds and practices in almost all of the major world religions, including neo-paganism and secular humanism. So what holds you all together? Is it a belief or what? So I talk about the principles and I talk about our history and I talk about our mission in this church. We came up with it ourselves, by which I mean y'all came up with it yourselves before I was here, wrote it on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. We've come to the time in our service when we breathe deeply into that place where we are most who we are. This is the place where we can speak and listen to God as we understand God, or just listen to our inner wisdom, or just breathe and find some stillness. It is in this stillness that we learn to be strong, that we can find clarity. That we can Make our souls fit to be compassionate toward the sorrowing and the joyful. It is in this place where we come to sink our roots down deeply into the foundation of love. so that we might be more loving first toward ourselves than toward those around us. We hold in our hearts today those who are sorrowing and suffering, those who are addicted 
those who are in financial terrors, family troubles, dealing with a bad diagnosis. We ask to find the strength to sit with that sorrow, not turn away. We hold in our hearts also those who are in harm's way because of war or natural disaster. We also seek the strength of soul to rejoice with those who are rejoicing rather than feeling our own lives smaller because of their joy. Become the people we are called to be. Let us enter the silence together. are now invited to light candles of joy and sorrow, hope and remembrance. So, as you know, we are Unitarian Universalists, and about once a year I'm going to tell you the Universalist faith story near the birthday of a man named John Murray who was the first universalist minister to land on the shores of the New World. At least it was new to the Europeans. John Murray was a not very good businessman in England. His business was floundering. He had a wife and a daughter who became ill, and the doctor's bills just killed him. So he fell behind in his payments, he was in debt, and back in those days, in the 1700s, if you fell into debt, you went into debtor's prison. He was languishing there in debtor's prison, trying to figure out how to pay off his debt, when his wife and his child died. Now, John Murray had been, with his family, an enthusiastic attendee at Um, the church of a man named Joseph Priestley, who invented oxygen, uh, discovered oxygen. (laughs) People didn't breathe before then. And John Murray um, attended other universalist church services, and he was also a lay preacher of the universalist message. And the universalist message is called universalist because it's universal salvation. And everybody at the end gets to be gathered together into the arms of the one, the mystery. God, as they called it then. So um, he would preach that no one goes to hell and that everyone is gathered to God in the end. And then in prison, when his wife and baby died, he got so angry at God that he said, vowed, he would never preach again, ever. Not going to talk about it. God had disappointed him bitterly, and he was finished. Well, his wife's brother bailed him out, paid his debt, and paid his way to America. He was on a ship with a bunch of other European people, and a captain who was maybe not the best captain in the world because they were supposed to land in New York, but they landed in Philadelphia instead. And most of the people just got off in Philadelphia because they were ready to be done with the voyage. But John Murray stayed on the ship to get to um, New York, 
Now, this is a faith story, which means it's true in its essence, but not maybe in its historical details. So be aware that you're listening to a universalist faith story. The captain and the ship, skeleton crew, one or two passengers, ran aground on a sandbar off Cape uh, Goodluck, New Jersey. For those of you who know New Jersey, it's around where Tom's River is now. So they were stuck on the sand dune on the sandbar without much food. John Murray volunteered to row ashore to find some food for the crew. So he rowed ashore, tramped through the woods, came to a clearing where there was a farmhouse with a building behind it. And on the porch was a farmer cleaning fish. John Murray is said to have said to the farmer, I'm John Murray. Farmer said, I'm Thomas Potter. John Murray said, I'd like to buy those fish. We've run aground. Tom, Thomas Potter said, yeah, I know, I saw y'all. Um, or I saw you guys, since it was New Jersey. And um, <laughs> he said, my wife and I don't get much company, and so if you would come to dinner and uh, converse with us, we would be pleased to just give you these fish. So John Murray took the fish back to the ships, came back over, stayed for dinner, and um, conversed with Potter and his wife. And uh, he said, what is that building behind your farmhouse? And Potter said, well, it is a chapel that I built because I've been to a lot of church in my time. And I've never heard a preacher that made much sense. And God told me if I built this chapel, there would come a preacher who would make sense to me. You're not a preacher, are you? (laughs) No, I am not, said John Murray. Well, as he had dinner with them in subsequent evenings, um, it did come out that he had been a lay preacher of the Universalist Persuasion. And um, Potter said, would you please preach in my chapel for my friends? I will invite everybody I know. And Murray said, no, I will not. I vowed never to preach again. Potter said, I'll tell you what, if you're still stuck on the sand dune by Sunday, come preach. And Murray thought, surely to God we'll not still be stuck here (laughs) Sunday. So he said, okay. Sure enough, Sunday came and they were still stuck. Murray preached his universalist message. Thomas Potter said, thank you, baby Jesus. I have finally heard something that makes sense to me, the universalist message, and all his friends rejoiced, and John Murray began preaching in the new world, new to Europeans, in the new world, and uh, became a chaplain in one of George Washington's Revolutionary Army regiments. After that, he got a church in Gloucester, Massachusetts, um, married into uh, Massachusetts society, and universalism was off to a good start. It mostly spread across the U.S. um, over the years uh, in blue-collar communities, people who worked with their hands, people who were tired of hearing that, um, that they were too dumb to understand God's ways. Now, 
here's what most people hear or heard back then and in some places now. Um, I heard on the radio this songwriter from Lubbock, Texas. I've told you this before. I'm sure you remember. And he said, we learned two things as children in Lubbock. Uh, God loves you and he'll send you straight to hell. Two, sex is evil, dirty, and dangerous, and you should save it for the ones you love. (laughs) The universalists loved the message that God was too good to send anybody to hell. This was also a message, coincidentally, shared by the Unitarians. They were not uh, merged until 1961. So um, the Unitarians preached that there was no hell. And the first Unitarian sermon, when the Unitarians kind of came out in the United States, they'd been there for a long time. But in 1819, in Baltimore, one of our forebears named William Ellery Channing preached what we now call the Baltimore Sermon. It lasted an hour and a half or so. And in it, he said, amongst many other things, he said, who among you would burn one of your children for making a mistake? In fact, we would call the police if someone were to do that. Why would we imagine that we are better parents than God? Would God burn his children for making a mistake? No. If God is a loving parent... Surely he would not do something that is against even our laws in this time. So he made sense. We are still surrounded by people to whom hell is not a quaint metaphor. People take it very literally. In many churches... It is still preached from the pulpit. Now, universalism itself as a denomination began to wane in the late 1800s and the mid-20th century um, because it wasn't really done anymore in the more educated denominations, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the um, Methodists, it wasn't really preached from the pulpit anymore much that you were going to hell. So you could kind of avoid the whole thought um, somewhat and sit in the pews and enjoy your church. But you could not, and I was 15 years a Presbyterian minister, you still could not really stand in the pulpit in a Presbyterian church and say, there is no hell people would become very concerned because many people feel that the undergirding of a belief in hell of your life, that is what keeps you in line. And if you didn't believe in hell, where would you be? So um, I, my wife and I love to go to the movies and we went to see a movie called The Drop the other night. It's a Dennis Lehane story. He's a wonderful writer And one of the central characters, I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but he's done something terrible, and he feels that he's going to go to hell. He's a young Catholic young man, 
and he just feels that it's inevitable he's going to be in hell. So he doesn't take communion. He's done something terrible, unforgivable. And there are so many people like that who harbor a secret dread that they're hell-bound. And that secret dread of hell makes so many people do so many destructive things. Some people just destroy themselves because they feel like they're broken and unredeemable. Some people hurt their children because they are told by their preachers that the children's souls are in their hands and that if your child is not saved, it's your fault. And so, my friends, in Texas, as in many other places in the country, in fact, every place that's uh, the Bible Belt, which is every place in our country except, you know, maybe L.A., San Francisco, Madison, Ann Arbor, New York, Philadelphia, D.C., Miami, Every other place is the Bible belt. It's not really a belt. It's more like a, like a rodeo buckle. You can, I'm wearing my flames today because I'm on fire with our good news that there is no hell. There are people who take it absolutely literally, and there are preachers who say like this man in California, um, McDonald, I think is his name. I wrote it down, but I can't find it now. If your child comes out to you as gay and they won't repent of their sin, you must shun them completely and, quote, turn them over to Satan, unquote. Many of the youth that are homeless in our country are homeless because they are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Many of the youth who come out to their parents are told that they must leave home and go live wherever they can find to live. This opens them up to sexual exploitation to further abuse, to further bullying, to despair. Of the estimated 1.6 million homeless American youth, up to 42% identify as lesbian and gay. What I'm saying to us is that our message, you each are beacons of hope in our culture. If you can radiate the belief that lesbian and gay people are loved, lovable, and fully accepted by God. I got an email this week from someone named Will. I don't know where he lives. He said, I found your name on the website, and I wanted to write to you because I'm feeling so alone. I am 25 years old, and I have moved out of my house with my parents. I'm not married and I don't have children, I hope you know where I'm going with this. He couldn't even say it out loud. He said, I just need to know, does God still love me? This is crucial, my people. 
This is a life and death issue. LGBT youth are four times more likely to attempt suicide than straight youth are. And I just heard at the end of the second service from one of our members who's done suicide prevention training with her folks, she said, in the interviews, LGBT youth are far more likely to say they wish their suicide attempt had not failed. Most people say, I'm glad it didn't fail. I'm glad it failed, but not the LGBT youth. Even questioning youth, even youth who don't identify as gay, they're just questioning. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not, I don't know, I have feelings. Questioning youth are three times more likely to attempt suicide than straight youth. Just for having the question. Because why? We're so accepting in our culture. (sighs) I wish we were. But you can tell the level of acceptance in our culture by looking at our youth who want to kill themselves when they think they're gay. You can look at the NFL. You can see, oh gosh, we're going to have a gay player. Oh no, it's going to be a distraction. We're going to have a distraction of a gay player. That guy over there killed two people, you know, but we can handle that. This guy over there punched his wife out in a in an elevator, that guy over there wounded his child for whipping him like they do in East Texas. Um, it was a shock to him to find out our laws in Texas say that's not okay. It's been a good discussion for the whole U.S. because there are so many people that go, ah, I was whipped like that when I was a child and I turned out fine. Yeah, yeah, we turned out fine. So they go crazy when there's a gay player. And the whole culture has to tell them to go crazy when there are abusive players. Parents are so desperate to show their children that it's not okay to be gay that they will actually throw them out of the house because of hell. Because of hell, the idea of hell makes people crazy. It makes people shun their family members. It makes little kids tell other little kids they're going to hell. And it makes them tell them their parents are going to hell. One of my favorite moments in South Carolina was when one of my sons went with his friend to youth group. And the youth group leader, I was kind of a well-known out lesbian person uh, and Unitarian. Um, Hard to tell which was worse. (laughs) Probably the Unitarian. In the South, everybody's okay with somebody being a little funny, but not with um, not believing Jesus is your Lord and Savior. So the youth group leader says to my son, it does not give me any pleasure to say this to you. This is in front of the group. Your mother's going to hell. Fortunately, my son was Unitarian. So he was kind of like, thank you for sharing. What I want to tell you is that hell is not even a concept that's in the Christian or Jewish scriptures. It's not there. Here's what you need to know. In the Jewish scriptures, the place where people go when they're dead is called Sheol. Sheol is a, is a Hebrew word, meaning the place people go when they're dead. And it is, 
you sit there and you watch your descendants and their descendants have their lives and you're kind of peaceful and it's timeless. And so if you don't have descendants, you might be bored, but if you have descendants, you're good. (laughs) Then came the Roman Empire, very influenced by Greek thought and the afterlife for the Greeks, therefore the Romans, was this place called Hades where it was like Sheol, only there was a river and on the one side were the good people and on the other side were the bad people. These were the folks who believed in Zeus and Hera and those guys. They believed good people over here, bad people over there. Uh, Otherwise, it's pretty similar. There's a river going through it. And this is the situation, this is the Roman Empire idea of the afterlife that Rabbi Jesus was referencing when he told his parable about trickle-down economics. You know the one? Uh, There's a rich guy and there's a poor man at the gate. And the rich guy comes out and gives him a hunk of bread every now and then um, because the rich guy's feeling good, so he helps the poor person. And the poor person's out there with the dogs waiting for the crumbs. And then they both die and go down to uh, Hades. Tartarus is one of the words for it. Tartarus is the word that they translate hell in uh, the New Testament. They being the translators who have such a life and death grip on our thought about the afterlife. The translators, not even the people who wrote it. People who wrote it wrote Tartarus. Translators wrote hell. Okay, so Tartarus, this place, um, then the rich man says to the poor man who's over with the good people, the rich man's over with the bad people, please, I'm so thirsty, just give me a drop of water to quench my thirst. And the poor guy is like, um, and all the other good people are like, you had your chance. And, um, and I'm paraphrasing quite a bit. So the three words that are translated hell in the Christian scriptures, because they're always translated Sheol in the Hebrew scriptures, hell, Sheol is one of them. When Rabbi Jesus says, you will go down to Sheol, or when the book of Revelation says, and then came a pale rider and Sheol followed him, um, it's translated hell, but it really is just Sheol, which you all know what it is, just kind of a gray place where you watch people who are still alive. And, um, or Tartarus, translated hell, which was just the the Greeks' idea of a place where people are dead and there's a river running through them. You can talk to each other. Um, Then Gehenna is translated hell. And Gehenna is the word most often used in the Christian scriptures that's translated hell. What's Gehenna? It's the trash heap that's on the outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It's the name of a place, Gehenna. The Valley of Henna, you know, Gehenna, is uh, the place where the trash is thrown. So, you tr- you know, you put your truck tires and you put your mattresses and you put your old rusty cars and everything uh, and the bodies of the criminals on this place. And it's, you know how trash does when it sits there. It just kind of starts smoldering. And so it's this smoldering, yucky, outside place where you're not in the community anymore just out there on the trash heap, Gehenna. That's translated hell. No fire, just smoldering because it's trash. Know what I'm saying? It's not a great place to go, don't get me wrong. Um, You don't want to be thrown there as a criminal. But it's a a way of speaking. You're going to be thrown outside the community with the trash. 
if you do such and such and such and such. It's what they say Rabbi Jesus said. But you always have to say, did Jesus say this? No. No. This is what they say Jesus said. And then you have the translations of what they say Jesus said. So we don't ever know. And we certainly don't have enough of a leg to stand on that we can jump up and down on somebody's head with it. That you can throw a kid out of the house with it. See what I'm saying? That you can shun your relatives and say, well, y'all are going to hell. My sister-in-law came to visit one time long ago when I was married to her brother. And we were having a, a, a Presbyterian Christmas Eve service. And they stayed home because they don't worship with unbelievers who are going to hell. So some of those people who are hell-believing people, they don't even believe that other people who believe the same thing as they do are going to heaven. That even people who go to a church with a different name or slightly different beliefs, that they're going to hell. It's crazy. And it's nowhere in the Bible. Where do we get the tormenting demons and where do we get the flames? I'll tell you where. Dante and Milton, not the Bible. Dante's Inferno, you have these levels of hell and therefore people who have all the different kinds of sins. Like the lustful people are all swirling in a storm constantly forever. But I don't know anybody who just has lust. Don't you think many people have like a dual diagnosis, sin-wise? <laughs> or multi-sinuous? <laughs> so it seems to me that you'd have to be like traveling through the layers and back again over and over if there were layers of hell for different sins. But come on. I mean, Dante was writing a book. He was expressing himself. He was trying to make money. But uh, at the bottom of hell... In Dante's Inferno is Satan. Is he in fire? No. He's sunk to his waist, stuck in, a, in ice. That's Dante. So from Dante, the less well-educated preachers have taken the demons that poke you and torment you, but they didn't go with the ice. Where'd they get the lake of fire? Where are they always talking about, you be thrown in the lake of fire? That's from Milton. Paradise Lost opens with Satan and his rebel angels. That would make a great band name, by the way, the rebel angels. Might be, might be taken already. But Satan and his rebel angels are uh, chained in a lake of fire. That's where that comes from, not the Christian scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures, okay? So none of this is in the very scriptures that the hell-believing people feel are so important. None of it. And you can tell them. But I'm telling you, if you do, you'll get resistance because they want to believe in it for some reason. It would make me crazy with worry and sorrow. But some people seem to feel that it makes them in a better position on earth. They know they're going to be okay. and Everybody else is lost. So what does universalism mean for us other than um, that everyone is saved at the end and goes to be with God? Some people don't even believe in God here or the afterlife or anything. So what would universalism mean there? Well, I think Theodore Parker has a good idea of it. And what he says um, is this, often quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
He says, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The ark is a long one. My eye reaches but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. Dame Julian of Norwich would say, all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be. This is a universalist statement. Everything in the end is going to be okay. And as the boy in the Marigold Hotel says, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. <laughs> That's not to say that there's no suffering. There's terrible suffering in this life. But the arc bends toward justice. Our journey bends toward wholeness. Our end, whatever it may be, is going to be okay. We don't have to be afraid. You know, people study religion in order to deal with death. and Some of us are more hard up against it than others. It's a very interesting proposition that gets even more interesting the closer you are to it. What happens? What's going to happen? And a universalist would say, I don't know, but it's going to be okay. Thank you for that lovely musical ending to the sermon. (laughs) Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Please sing with me if you care to. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. We hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.com. Dot O-R-G.